Welcome to episode 5 of the second series of the Celtic Whiskey Pod. This time I'm looking into the ancient craft of coopering, a skill that can trace its origins all the way back to Roman times. Whiskey would not be whiskey without the wood, and good quality barrels are an essential part of this process. Indeed, some distilleries will tell you that the cask is responsible for at least 50% of the flavour in the finished product. I reckon that in some cases it is even more, especially in this new era of exotic woods and unusual cask types. I was very fortunate to talk to two different coopers, one with decades of experience and one who has only just started out on his coopering career. Jer Buckley may already be familiar to many of you, He is not just a cooper at Middleton, but a great ambassador for the whiskey trade. He is unbelievably a fifth-generation cooper with a rich family history in whiskey making and has seen all the changes in fortune that a treasure drink has gone through in the preceding decades. The craft of coopering may have stayed the same in that time, but he has been around for many of the innovative changes that we have witnessed, such as the Middleton Dargaelic project, and of course the new wood types seen in recent Method and Madness whiskies. Later in the episode I also talked to Ian Leonard from Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. Both Ian and the company are new to the coopering industry in Ireland, and for Kentucky Bourbon Barrel this marks their first foray out of the United States. However, it mirrors the recent success of Irish whisky in general, and the opening of a new Irish cooperage demonstrates how much confidence there is in the Irish whisky industry. So first up... Here's Jer Buckley from Middleton Distillery. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. So, welcome to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, Jer Buckley, uh, legendary Cooper, I, I suppose, at this stage, uh, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, from uh, Middleton thank you Distillery. very much. <laughs> um, so, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the trade and the, the skill uh, involved in coopering and. Um, how it's passed down from generation to generation so maybe you can tell me a little bit how how you know your story and how you learned to trade yeah i I, my family have been coopering for over 200 years Uh, i have evidence of one of my ancestors 1841 in the cooper society working Uh, i learned directly from my dad Um, and I, i i was lucky enough in that i was just old enough to apply for the position Mm-hmm. I was 16. Oh, wow. And um, so, and then I served my apprenticeship directly to my father. Mm-hmm. So um, the skills that I have now are directly down to the generations from him. Uh, I have an apprentice at the moment that I'm training in for the last two years. Yeah. Uh, in regards to what I teach him, for example, compared to when I started 47 years ago, um, there's no difference. Mm-hmm. I, we use the same cast. We still have um, American bourbon barrels. We have uh, sherry butts. Occasionally, we have hogsheads. Um, so there are kind of three main size casks we have. Mm-hmm. And we occasionally get wine casks. So in training my apprentice, um, I do exactly the same in regards to how he play, how he repairs an American barrel, repairs a butt. We don't make barrels in Middleton yeah. anymore. Um, probably because that originated when, when American barrels were used, can only be used in bourbon once. That meant there was a massive surplus of barrels. Mm. So when we started bringing them first into Ireland back in the mid-60s, um, basically what we were doing from then on was repairing. 
Yeah. And um, we weren't making it, but it, it's it's only one generation ago that that my dad yeah. made bars by hand. That's using what I was going to say. So I, I was kind of guessing by the by the date that that would have been your father who saw that tradition uh, tr- transition. Yeah. Sorry, transition from yeah. yeah. And, and and the funny thing is when I when I was working under him, um, he would have me practice every day using the axe and how to carve a stave. Right, and yeah. he used to always say to me, you know, really good. He was always very <laughs> a great pride in how skillful he was with an axe and how fast he was. And he had me practice every day. But I don't think he understood that we were never going to be making new barrels by hand anymore. And mm. um, having said that, I'm glad <laughs> we kept that tradition alive. Yeah. Because funny enough, only today uh, I received an axe from my apprentice that we had made by a skillful blacksmith down in Clannacilty called Mark Keeling. Um, and my apprentice is left-handed, whereas I'm right-handed. <laughs> so the, the axe has to be left-handed. Oh, wow. I didn't realize, carving. didn't realize you could get left-handed and right-handed axes. Uh, you do, yeah, because yeah. the bevel is only on one side of the axe. It's only okay. one bevel. It's not yeah. bevel on both sides like you would chop a tree. Yeah. So that means if you're left-handed, you've got to have it facing in a certain way that the bevel mm. cuts. Sorry, is that because it's cutting on the inside of, of a stave? You want a slight curve? It. It, it, it's, it's not yeah. cutting the curve it's cutting lengthways yeah. down the side of the stave so what yeah. I'm doing is I'm starting off in the middle of the stave taking a tiny fraction off and then towards the end of the stave I'm taking maybe an inch off or maybe 25 mil yeah. and I'm getting that will give me the the um, the, be- the, 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 the flaw of the, the cask whereby when you push down a hoop you tighten the whole thing it'll give yeah. me the display on the cask the shape of the barrel so the, the other two aspects, as you said, then would be rounding the inside barrel and rounding the outside. So just today, he made the handle for his axe. Um, yeah. And I said to him, this is a direct quote, I said, the handle is a very specific shape. You know, it's it's a very, through trial and error over centuries, it developed into a very odd-shaped handle. But it means it's very balanced in your hand. Mm. And I said to him t- just this morning, I said, I'm delighted you made your handle in the same way mine is made because you're keeping that tradition alive. And in 40 years' time, you'll be showing someone else how that handle is made. It's not that we're using an axe every day anymore, but we're keeping those skills and tradition alive. So that's yeah. that's one of the great pride I have in coopering in that I'm teaching exactly the same things my dad taught me uh, to my apprentice and keeping that tradition alive because in repairing a barrel, there is no different to Roman times. Yeah. The only major difference we've gone through in say two or three thousand years is now we have steel hoops rather than timber hoops. Timber hoops okay, such yeah. as ash or hazel mm. or something like that. I often say to people, if, if you watch Game of Thrones, you'll always see the casks all of timber hoops. Yeah. Because metal was so expensive to get made, you either put it in tools or you put it in weapons. Mm. So it rarely went on a barrel. So apart from that, like a butt is a very large cask, 500 liters. It's exactly the same as a Roman cask 2,000 years ago. Same capacity, same dimensions, except now steel hoops rather than timber. So the link with the past is always usually important to me. Mm. Uh, The direct link with my dad, I'm still using his tools 47 years later. Yeah, that's Um, amazing. And and getting new ones made for my apprentice, getting an ads made, an axe, a crows. He's making a lot of his own tools. Yeah. In, the, in the way I did. Um, so it's a very hands-on, very traditional. That's the one thing with coopering as well is that you're making a cylinder. 
they're making yeah. a wrong cylinder. So there was never any way to improve on the circle. No. So it's still the same. Yeah. So that's why craft doesn't change. Mm. Now, in regards to new techniques or the way things have changed, it's great, greatly changed in mass production of barrels. Yeah. In in machinery and stuff like that, in the produce. And when you go to a lot of these cooperages that produce large quantity of casks, like in America, it's usually just technicians. And it's usually only coopers who are at the end of the process repairing anything that breaks. Wow, that's incredible. Now, in Spain, where we get the sherry cask made, the sherry butts, the 500 mm. liter cask, it's still all coopers who do everything hands-on. Um, there's, there's quite a number of machines, but it's still very hands-on. For example, when they come to bend the barrel, they light a fire inside the barrel to heat the wood so you loosen the fibers in the oak mm. and it becomes pliable. And then you can get your shape, your bend, by yeah. putting a cable around the open end, winding it in, and you have your shape. So you don't bend the staves or the long pieces one by one. You do it all yeah. in one go. The whole thing. Like they did yeah. in Roman times. Yeah. It's incredible. I can't think of any other so, trade. So that's really... some outline of, of the craft. Mm. I can't think of any other trade really that has such a um a personal connection with with other generations you know there's no there's no manual is there there's no no, no sort of a handbook there, there, uh, there's not and like i often heard somebody saying there are no diy coopers yeah because to make a vessel that's not going to leak is is a lot of experience a lot of skill a lot of time put into learning your craft yeah. honing it and um, so that's for example, if you just take carpentry, which would be working in wood as well, everything now is is battery operated drills, planers, um, you know, nail guns. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's none of that in coopering. Yeah, we don't have, like the only machine that really helps us. We have a planer yeah. to help us plane the staves, and we have a, a hoop driver that drives the hoop down. Yeah, but they're the only two machines I have. Would you um, hand drill I, um, bung holes as well? Do you use a hand drill for that? We do. We, yeah. we, we do drill bungholes um, yeah. when we have to. Uh, sometimes when we replace a stave. Now, most of all our staves, if there's bunghole is taken out, it's not replaced with a, with a hole because we're standing our barrels on a pallet. So we're filling from the top end gotcha. down. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're drilling a hole on top um, mm -hmm. to do that. Now, some people have questioned, is that a good idea that you palletize the barrels rather than have them horizontal and rolling them? It's actually really good from the point, from my point of view as a cooper, because once the barrel is on the pallet, it's not being disturbed, it's not being knocked, it's not being banged against something. Yeah. It, it really is just pristine from the day it goes in to the day it comes out. In mm. that, if as long as it doesn't leak, it's perfect. What yeah. can happen when you're constantly rolling barrels, you might loosen a hoop, you might bang it off a wall, you might damage it in some way when you just have it on the pallet for 30 years and you don't interfere with it yeah. and the wood holds up, like wood is still wood at the end of the day, it can have defects. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes those, def those defects don't show up for 20 years. And, and that's and because, break. And that's because um, when you're on pallets, you, you, you can get to a specific barrel quite easily without disturbing them. When you have them on their side, you have sometimes have to move dozens or more barrels to get to a specific one, don't you? It, you, you could, in, in a traditional racked warehouse, as we call yeah. it, uh, as some people call them rickhouse, we used to call them a racked warehouse in Middleton. Um, they can be quite difficult to get at. You can sometimes get at both sides of the cask, the, the lids, the heads, yeah. as we call them, 
and that can you can do a fix on that. What we what has changed in my time in our stillers in 47 years is the quality of casks we're bringing in from the US now is really high standard okay, and the quality yeah. from Spain and otherwhere. So that what we're looking for is we're looking for a really good quality cask that can withstand the length of time in a warehouse and not yeah. give any problems. We've done a few things to achieve that ourselves in that we don't leave our barrels outdoors, our empty barrels. They're kept mm-hmm. undercover indoors all the time. So you don't, for example, this week now with the hot weather we're having, the wood doesn't open up because okay, yeah. as it's yeah. it's extremely hot and yeah. it dries out. And then you get a shorter rain, like we did have a shorter this morning. Mm-hmm. That gets into the barrel. And this is a custom problem in Scotland and elsewhere. That water then gets contaminated, goes moldy. You fill your barrel, you don't know there's a problem yeah. on the inside. And you end up with issues 10, 15 years later. Mm. We've eliminated that completely. So yeah. that the quality barrel coming out today is like a barrel we only bought yesterday. Now, wood is still wood, as I said. It still can crack. So we do generate enough work for ourselves in bringing in over 350,000 American barrels. We will have mm. a portion that needs repair. Um, yeah. And we do other things. Like we examine every single barrel that arrives at the site. Yeah. It's handled by Cooper. It's an incredible amount of of barrels you get in day to day. I've been there and seen the, the filling warehouse, and it's just nonstop. It's like a, it's like a it's, conveyor it, belt, and uh, it's it's nonstop. And yeah. and we're filling. Or sometimes some days we're filling over three thousand barrels a day. Yeah, that's um, ridiculous amount of whiskey. Ridiculous <laughs> amount compared to when I started, where the most we filled in a day was seven hundred. Was it was a record? Yeah. Um. So it's growing and growing all the time. And and I suppose that's the other big thing compared to the 80s when I started in the, in the 70s and 80s is the success of Irish whiskey. Mm. Uh, and I don't just mean uh, Irish Stillers and Jameson and, and Redbreast and all the rest, but the success with other distilleries around the country yeah, and is phenomenal and absolutely fantastic to see. I thought I'd never see it in my lifetime that Mm. that we would get back to somewhere where we were 100 years ago in the success of Irish whiskey. And with that comes employment, both for workers on the general floor, but also for Coopers. Also Coopers. Mm. And that's that's, uh, an important point I wanted to to discuss is um, how how important would be coopering and um, having a skilled cooper for, for new distilleries? You know, obviously some of the small ones can get away without having a cooper, but... I mean, well, I, well, I can imagine that there is a shortage of, of Coopers in Ireland right now. Would that be correct? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily a shortage. It has grown. Like traditionally, the only place that had Coopers were Bushmills in the north and ourselves, yeah. which averaged for a long time four or five Coopers. And now you're starting to see uh, uh, Coopers come in from Scotland. Some are being trained up as Irish Coopers. I think there's some in Tullamore, there's some yeah. up in Sligo. Um, you're starting to see independent cooperages start here. I think there's two independent cooperages now. Yeah. And that's probably the way to go for small independent distilleries where if they have coopering work that needs to be done that they can't do themselves in repairing a cask, it can be sent off to an independent cooperage, repaired and brought back. And that's largely the way it operates in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely for a large distillery like ourselves, it makes more sense to have our own coopers because the volume of barrels is so big yeah. um, and both the expertise in knowing to, to even handle barrels because once a barrel is full, if you're rolling it, it's a very delicate thing. Mm. It, 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 there's a quarter of a ton weight in, a, in an American barrel when it's full. If you 
yeah, how heavy things, the fat yeah, yeah. and bang it off something, you're going to break it in two. Yeah. So it's Coopers who pass on that knowledge and that training to other workers in the distillery mm. by saying, look, you need to be careful with that or whatever. Um, manual handling, all that kind of stuff, which we were trained at long before that term <laughs> came in, manual handling. Yeah. That's the whole thing, handlebars, how to lift them without hurting your back, all that kind of stuff. So um, I think for independent cooperages, that's probably the way to go is, is have an independent uh, cooperage for the small distilleries. Mm. Um, what we have done, what I have done with some distilleries, like Clonakilty uh, uh, and Dingle and a few others, is I have gone down and I've trained up maybe a worker in the factory. Maybe he might be an ex-carpenter or something like that on basic repairs. For oh, wow. Yeah. Because I don't feel, uh, for example, that I'm the sole custodian of my knowledge. I like mm-hmm. to pass it on. And if I can make it easier for a new distillery coming up and how to remedy some of the leaks or some of the issues, um, like handling, uh, fixing wormholes, fixing a hoop, general purpose repairs. I have yeah. no problem sharing that information whatsoever. Delighted yeah. to see the success of all these distilleries as well. What, what's a wormhole? Can you describe what that is? So that? sometimes you will get worm will come into the wood. Okay, right. So it's just um, wood It doesn't worm. tend yeah. to happen on European casks, yeah. but it can happen on American casks. It's an yeah. easy fix if you know how it's done. If yeah. you if you need it to be shown once where you take what we call a, a spoil, which is like the top of a pencil, Paired, mm-hmm. you make the same shape in in the stave in, with a punch, yeah. and you hammer in then the little pencil top, as I call it, into that, <laughs> and that will fix your your leak forever, yeah. and that's it fixed. Yeah. Um, and there's other things can go wrong with a cask and handling, and uh, like the head can go a small bit awry, and how to fix that. Mm-hmm. So when we when we deal with some distilleries, we teach them that we teach them how to sample cask properly, and. Um, you know, it, it, like as, and I think in fairness to our distillers, uh, they're quite happy to share that information. Um, if you're a member of uh, the whiskey association, they they get the, the for distillers and stuff like that. Um, yeah. quite happy it's very to generous of them. General information. Yeah, and 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 I find that generally around the world in production, that other cooperages, other factories are quite happy to share and help out mm. because we all have the same issues, same problems. Yeah. Um, and. I have no problem passing on. I've passed on useful information to the distilleries in the US as well. Like, hmm. for example, one thing we always do when our pallet, barrels are on a pallet, we always face the bung out. Because yeah. if you're going to get a leak, the chances are it's going to be in the bung, which is the hole on the side of the barrel. If that's facing out, you have the opportunity to fix it. Yeah. If it's facing in, you might even see it and your barrel is leaking away and you don't know it. <laughs> it's a simple thing, but until somebody tells you, face the bung out so you have a chance yeah. to fix it yeah, simple things can, like that you can get barrels that just drain completely without anyone noticing can't you and that's it's all yes it's all gone <laughs> it's all gone and yeah. um so you have an opportunity when you fill your barrel from the time you fill it to the time you put into warehouse to see if it's holding mm. if there's any possible leak with it so for example we've trained all our forklift drivers who put away our barrels with a kit on how to fix basic leaks and things like that it's oh, not yeah. the sole purpose of the Cooper to do it. We want yeah. everybody fixing leaks. Yeah. So it's everybody's responsibility mm. to, to get If you see a wormhole leak, for example, anybody yeah. can fix that. Just in, in terms of percentages, I mean, you mentioned that barrels and sherry bots are incredibly sort of higher quality than, than they used to be and, and a lot more reliable. 
but you know when you get a container of of barrels in like what would be the kind of rejection rate that you you kind of you know have to put some aside and and say okay that needs repaired before it's filled so what we did many years ago or 30 odd years ago is we write a report on every single container that arrives into the distillery mm-hmm. so we have a list of all the issues that might arise with a barrel of missing hoop a broken head a broken stave how many broken staves whatever so yeah. what we buy from from the states we buy a class a barrel a number one grade barrel in other words there should be nothing wrong with it yeah yeah now you pay extra for that mm-hmm. but wood is still wood a human being is still a human being you might not always spot an issue so yeah. that's why we examine every barrel when they come in so what we're looking when the barrel comes in then we're looking for 100 pass rate for example, if we got 10 rejected in a container of 208 barrels, mm. when that report goes back to the US every Monday morning, they would say, well, we didn't do a great job on that container. They got 10 yeah. rejects that they yeah. shouldn't have got. So it's taken years to build up to the standard we're at now where we get very little yeah. rejection rate at inspection. Now, we might get a high rate at filling because sometimes you can't see a leak. It's not visible to the naked eye that a stave has split slightly or something like that. Um, but generally speaking, for the, for the three Coopers that are working here in Middleton, we have plenty of work. We do get plenty of work coming in because, mm. as I said, bringing over 350,000 barrels a year, um, you're going to generate some defects. But for busy, even yeah. for new distilleries and whatever, you want to be buying the top quality barrel so that you don't run into issues with leaking barrels yeah. that you can't fix. Now, you said so that... It, are, yes. Uh, is it A grade or A class you, you described? A them class. As? Some yeah. do A yeah. class. Some do a grade one, which is grade yeah. one to 10. 10 being the worst, which would need a okay. lot of repair. Grade one, supposed to be 100% power that needs no repair. Yeah. It should be perfect. Now, it could still have a defect. Yeah. As I said, there's still the human element. and There's still wood in, involved that it can break. And so we do see some leaks at filling. Mm-hmm. And what we would do is empty the barrel at the filling, fill into another cask, and that cask then comes to us for repair. And yeah. the filling guys will mark exactly where the leak was, so we have a good idea yeah. what we're looking for, you know? And um, um, It makes you wonder where the other grades of barrels end up, you know? who Who's buying well, all them? So, some independent cooperages might buy them because they're cheap okay, and, yeah, and repair yeah. them themselves yeah. and then sell them on. Yeah. Um, yeah that could generate work for the work in. Yeah. 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 Um, but for a distillery, that's not what you don't. That's not what mm-hmm. you want, especially a small distillery. You, you want it perfect. And it's, it's, we find the same with our sherry cast. We we rarely ever repair a sherry butt mm. uh, because we have full control on that end in that we know exactly where the wood is coming from. We know the yeah. sawmill. We visit the sawmill. We know how the wood is seasoned in Jerez in, down in southern Spain. We see the cast being made. So they're re- they're made to a very high standard, and you yeah. you 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 kind of find that in the wine industry, whether you're wine or sherry or port, the standard of oak is a lot higher. Oh, um, it's incredible, yeah. Uh, I, whereas in the whiskey business, especially in America, the demand is so big for barrels yeah. that you know you know you, you can have a, a cask. And the other problem with America as well is their summer heat mm. can really cause a lot of issues with cask cracking and stuff like that because. Of, of the summers reaching 32, 35, 40 yeah. degrees, that's it, you know? 
and they pile them high in in Kentucky, don't they? They have warehouses that are you know eight ten stories high, and they uh, do. The, the heat and, really and, accumulates in them. Yeah. And generally speaking, their maturization loss, their angel share, can be four to maybe six percent on average. Yeah. On the top of their warehousing, it can be 18 percent. Wow. So I can tell you how hot it is at the top of that's. Yeah, I'd say the accountants have summer. a nightmare with that then. Trying to calculate. They do, yeah. Losses, yeah. yeah. Uh, nobody wants to see their, their whiskey evaporating out to the barrel because of heat or whatever. Now, yeah. Ireland and Scotland, I suppose, are two best places to mature whiskey because we have such mild climates. Yeah. Uh, both in winter and summer. Um, and a great place, Ireland is a fantastic place to grow oak as well because we don't get stress of summer too much. There's mm. always some bit of water, there's always some bit of rain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're lucky. It's two percent in Ireland is the average. Yeah, um, Irish oak. Talking of that, did you have much involvement, or have you had much involvement in the the dark Gaelic um, barrels? And, I did. Uh, I was lucky yeah. to be very involved from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, at the very beginning, we looked for as much information as we could on the last time Irish oak was used in whiskey barrels, and mm. we couldn't find any information. Right. Uh, there was no evidence in the archives um, because even in Cork here, we have a butter exchange in Cork where Cork was very famous for exporting butter. Mm. And they, in their records, they show that all the oak coming in to make their casks, what they call firkins, a firkin of butter, yeah. in 1850 was all coming from New York by then. So in um, 1850, there was virtually no oak left. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had to source, we sourced some oak from Quilche and I made a straight cask. I wasn't allowed to light a fire to bend it or too close to the distillery. And <laughs> um, so I made a straight cut because we weren't sure if it was going to be porous. How was it going to react? Yeah. Was it strong enough? Because, for example, American oak is very strong. Hmm. And it's very strong because it, it, it gets a lot of heat and a lot of stress in the summer from drought and it tightens up the grain. Uh, European oak is not as strong as American, but it's still fairly strong. Irish oak is the weakest of the oak family. Now, mm. it's not saying it's a weak oak. It's just weaker than American oak. It's still a very strong timber. Yeah. Um, so I made a cask back in 2011, 2012. And then we went about trying to source oak um, and through Quilcha. And then we made contact with a, a company in Wicklow. Um, and the forester there was Paddy Purser, a very well-renowned forester who would deal with growers who are both selling wood, not just oak, but say ash or whatever, but also advising on how to grow forestry, how to grow new plantations of oak, ash, hazel, various trees. Yeah. And he put us in contact with our first guy that we dealt with, which was Mickey Davis in, in, in Grinch's Wood in, in Callan, yeah. in Kilkenny. Yeah. Um, and we pulled, we pulled out over there, we pulled out nine trees. Um, one got rejected at the sawmill. Mm-hmm. because the, the quality for oak has to be really high because any defect in the tree or in the oak, you get leaks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very high spec. Now, the, the tree that was rejected had a slight twist in the tree. It was, it was turning a little bit. That's a defect for barwood. In other words, you can <laughs> get a crack that can go sideways. Now, that tree is perfect for lumber, yeah. for shipbuilding, for anything else, but just not for barrels. Mm. Um, so. Um, through that process then, I, when we were in the forest, what we were looking for was, uh, through Paddy Purser, is we were trying to start up to get certification 
for our in a what we call an PEFC certification. It's a French system, and um, so what we want is sustainability in the forest. We want traceability, mm. and then what we found out through working with Paddy and the foresters is also through the certification the health of the forest. Okay, that we yeah. maintain the health of the forest, both in animals, insects, species. Uh, it, it, different varieties of species and so on wow that's um, incredible so yeah. um what we did then is in the forest we we came upon the idea organically in the forest could we number the logs hmm. could we number the stump could we keep the logs separate at the sawmill yeah. at the cooperage and we found we could and we did that so i followed the logs over to Tareth, or to sorry to galicia to Borala sawmill and the reason we sent the logs all the way to spain to be cut is they had the expertise to see the defects for barrel mm. wood yeah whereas we if we got a quarter sawn in ireland they would know the spec for barrel wood which is very high yeah for example that twist an irish sawmill wouldn't recognize that twist yeah um and then i followed i drove from northern spain down to the very south to <laughs> see the wood kept separate the logs cut it what is, is to be seasoned mm-hmm. kept separate on every pallet offloaded make sure in the yard they were all separate all numbered one to 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 eight as it turned out after yeah and then when they eventually made into barrels flew back over saw that eventually when they came home to be filled they were all kept separately now it's a logistic problem to be honest well, it's a big effort it's a huge effort logistic yeah. problem is when you come to empty the barrels so if you might have three barrels from one log, you might have six from another log. Because again, until you cut the log open, you don't know how good the oak yeah. is. You might have a defect in there. Um, and every time, say if they're filling three barrels, once they're full or are filled into bottles, they then have to change the label. Mm-hmm. Stop the whole line, change all the equipment, change the labels, start it up again. So f- for the bottling guys, you know, Dargaelic is a nightmare for them because they got to, <laughs> if you have six logs, you've got to change six labels. Well, they got to pay pay a lot more attention to what they're doing. Yeah. And then what we found years later is that people were going back to Mickey Davitt in, in Callan with a bottle of Dargaelic, say tree number four, yeah. and saying, can I go down to stump number four and put this on the log <laughs> picture with the stump? And, oh, and he did that. Yeah. They went down and got their photograph yeah. taken with, with the stump of the log yeah. that matured or the whiskey. Yeah. And now we put an older whiskey in in order to try and speed up the process a bit so that we could release it quicker. Yeah. Um, but it had spent at least maybe 18 to two years, 18 months to two years in, in the cask. So yeah. yeah, I had a big influence, our big association with Dar Gaelic. It was a big learning curve for me because now I was working with foresters. Now I was starting to learn the science of forestry. Yeah. The effects that it can have. Like on our, on our, on our latest uh Forest in 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 Coyle Bay, for example. Uh, every time I go to a forest, I learn something new. And in our latest one in Coyle Bay, uh, the, the Walsh family had planted a plantation over twenty years ago of oak mm-hmm. on maybe fifteen acres. And so, so what once was grain and and growing for grain and barley is now an oak plantation, young plantation. And what they were starting to see in the last couple of years is that. The new oak were starting to welcome back the pine marten. Okay. And when the pine marten yeah. comes back, 
he chases off the gray squirrel. And when mm-hmm. the gray squirrel leaves, the red squirrel comes back. Oh, now, if there was no plantation of oak, yeah. that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So that's some of the beautiful byproducts of reestablishing our oak forest that we mm. used to have, is we're starting to bring our, our, our natural creatures and animals back to what we used to have. Yeah. So that was a beautiful story and I, and to see that happening. And as I said, every time we go somewhere, we see that, like for example, one of the other previous releases was the first forest to record a woodpecker back in Ireland. And oh, wow. so it's 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 been a fantastic journey with our show mm. um, and to see it come back. We only harvest uh, maybe eight to ten trees a year yeah. for our show. So we're very careful about what we're removing. We do want certification. And when I talk about certification, I'm talking about a system called PEFC. Sometimes you see it on your food products. We're certified. In other words, that it's sustainable, traceable, and it's monitored for the health of the forest. Um, Or even other regions like grass regions or whatever. It can can certified. And that's what we're trying to do where we get all our new oak. So if we're buying new oak for our Spanish casks, it's all Mm. certified. If we're like recently in, in the US, we just launched a new red breast where we associated with a family from Kentucky, the Taylor family, mm-hmm. where again, the oak we're getting from them is certified and that they are, and it's it, the forest is audited by the certification. You don't just yeah. go ahead and put it on your label. You have <laughs> to prove everything you're doing in regards to sustainability and, and traceability and health of the forest and all that. And um, so we're starting to, try and get as much of that established as we can. We're, we can't really do it with second-hand casts we're buying, but mm. all our new wood, we're, yeah. we're trying to get it certified. And that all came out of Dargaelic. Yeah, I, I think it's been a, a fascinating project, and I can only imagine how satisfying it, it was for you. For, for me, a lot, of, um, a lot of what I took away from it was how limited it is what you can get from one oak tree you know you look at a, an oak tree and you think oh wow you know it's really tall and everything but when you start looking at it from the perspective of a cooper you can see oh well there's a knot there there's a knot there there's, yeah. a, there's a nice little gap in the middle that i might be able to get a, a length of staves out of and that, and that's it um I, and that's correct. incredible to think about because um sometimes for example i've said to people if they see a lawn tree in in the field whether it is beech or oak whatever and it's got a massive canopy Mm. beautiful looking tree which they are that's not very valuable it's got too much going on yeah what what the foresters are looking to do and again oh as i said learning something new every time go to a forest they when they plant new oak and, and and that's what they're trying to train people into doing and how to grow oak properly they would plant say a line of oak and then next to that, they'll plant a line of what they call nursery trees. It could mm. be larch, it could be pine, it could be beech. Um, and they are designed to grow faster than the oak. They'll take up all the light. So the trunk of the tree won't receive any light, so it won't send out any branches. Yeah. So you're getting nature to do your pruning fire. Mm. And then when the trees are about 20 to 25 years old, they'll cut, cut down the nursery trees. Their only purpose is to grow oak straight. That all we're yeah. looking for is a crown and no branches. And and that's been done for centuries, both in France and in Britain. Um, and that's some of the skills we're trying, they're trying, the foresters are trying to teach on to the next generation. Now, again, the 
with oak, it, it's a long investment. It's, it's 120 years at least for Irish oak. So it's, it's toward the fourth generation before you harvest that oak. But, but in fairness to a lot of the growers and farmers in Ireland, they're really interested in growing broadleaf oak. Um, That's great. So, um, so that is, is some, what is needed for oak is a really good quality oak with very little branches. So they could, and that's the same for lots of things, for furniture or lumber or whatever. Mm. It's the same spec. If you have a lot of knots going on, a lot of builders might have don't want that because structurally it might interfere or it might be a weakness. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of the, the skill is in growing oak properly. That, that you grow that beam um, and um, it, it, in, a, in a forest, in an in a, in a, in ancient forest, it happens naturally because what happens when when we harvest our oak, for example, we harvest enough in a spot to create a big enough hole in the forest for enough light to get in so the saplings can grow. Yeah, You have to create a light hole for enough sunlight to get in for that to happen. Mm. And that might happen naturally in a forest where an old will fall leave a hole in the canopy for what they for the nursery trees to come up and sometimes if you go to an oak forest you see loads of saplings and you come back a year later under the same size they're <laughs> only maybe two feet tall they're yeah. waiting for something to fall to raise for the canopy okay um, yeah. and and that and that's it so they're all in, in the nursery what they call mm. the nursery the, the young saplings waiting for that light source so they can race and they're all racing against each other. All these siblings are all yeah. racing against each other. Whoever gets to that canopy first wins. Yeah. Um, so it's like a and, young and that, and... again, uh, there are the stories you learn from when you go to foresters. Um, and when we do a felling, we, we try to educate people and all that as well. Mm. Um, so we, we talked about Irish oak and obviously there's some famous examples of, of other woods being used. Uh, now, do you have much dealing with the, the exotic woods and, I, I can imagine there's a, a good bit of work in repairing some of them and, and keeping them in, maintained. Yeah, they can be quite funny. Uh, like, as you know, uh, our latest release in Method and Madness, which is a brand we brought out a number of years ago to allow us uh, the, the methods we've honed over centuries, put it that way, and, and then also to go a bit mad. So the law <laughs> in Ireland says you must mature your whiskey in wood. Whereas the law in Scotland says you must mature an oak. Now, I think that really gives us an advantage in that we can use other species of wood. Absolutely. Sometimes yeah. they don't all work. Sometimes they cannot be great. Uh, the mm. latest one, the Japanese versions we brought out, we had three different types of wood. We had uh, Japanese oak, Masuna oak. We had uh, Japanese uh, cedar wood. And we had Japanese mm. chestnut. Yeah. Now, we have used chestnut in Methan Madness before, but European chestnut. To explain what that is, is it's the chestnuts that you might see people roasting. Yeah. Rather than, say, horse chestnuts that you would use for conquerors or whatever. Mm -hmm. The name is confusing. They're totally different species, even though they both call chestnuts. They're actually not. Um, and the other woods we've used, we've used, uh, we've used uh, cherry. We've used acacia. We used mulberry, which is a very small cask because the, the mulberry bush is such, the tree is tiny, so it's a really small cask. Yeah. I, I haven't done a whole lot of, I haven't had to do a whole lot of repairs on the cask. The, the, the Japanese oak, Masuna oak, can be funny yeah. because when they make the cask, for example, they don't quarter saw the oak. They have to split the logs themselves 
to try and get the direction of the grain going the right way. Oh, wow. Because the grain is going in such different directions. Yeah. That can cause a lot of porous, a lot of leaks. And mm. um, we've had some leaks in the Japanese oak, but we've been lucky. And others that have had Japanese oak have complained desperately that the leaks on. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that as well. Yeah. Um, because that grain direction is not uniform, it's not perfectly straight, mm. and it causes issues. Um, the one thing I would give a, a warning to anybody repairing, say, as we call the exhaust, as you said, um, is if you're repairing Japanese oak, you need to use Japanese oak to repair it with. Yeah. For, for example, so if you have a, one Japanese oak cast that's had a couple of cracks on it, you have to knock down a different Japanese oak to repair it. So you're just mm. going to leave that one there. If you get a second one that needs repair, you repair with the first one. I wouldn't advise using Spanish oak in Japanese cask because now you've got a little bit of what I would call contamination of oaks. Mm. And maybe you have different physical properties isn't, isn't well. going to be yeah. what you expected or look for. Yeah. So anytime I have to repair a wine cask, for example, I'll always repair with a similar wine cask. Yeah. Because I don't want to change the taste profile. I don't want the blenders or the distillers coming back to me saying, there's something off about that cask. It's not quite right because mm-hmm. there's two different oaks in there. There's European and there's maybe Spanish or something like that, or maybe there's American white oak or maybe Japanese oak. So mm-hmm. like, for example, I wouldn't put a, an oak stave in a cedar cask. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, um, but luckily it's been very small amounts of casks, nothing huge. Yeah. We've had to repair any of them, yes. Um, I did have to repair some of the Irish oak casks on occasion, but I had staves, spare oaks, Irish oak staves for that. Mm. I didn't mix it. I didn't use Spanish oak. I used Irish oak to repair Irish oak casks. Um, so I haven't worked on the cedar cask, for example, or the chestnut cask. They're very light. Um, like, for example, the chestnut can be six or seven percent angel share compared to two percent in oak okay so that'll tell yeah. you how open the grain is yeah and how big the angel share is i don't think you're going to see a 30 year old <laughs> chestnut whiskey coming out because the last is too big in it yeah yeah um yeah they've been interesting to try and it is it it is a trump card i think for for irish whiskey to have that opportunity to i agree you know, yeah to, to try different things um Let's talk a bit about the future of of coopering. So nothing has really changed in terms of uh, what tools you use and and the method, but obviously there there has to be a new generation. So you're you're training an apprentice at the moment, and is is there one other cooper at at Middleton as well? Is that right? There is one other cooper at the moment. Today, now, in his job, he's examining American barrels coming in from the US. So as I said, we handle every single cast that arrives on the site. We examine it visually. So he's doing that today. And my apprentice, as I said, he's below fitting a handle to an axe <laughs> that we got made. Um, yeah. So I allowed him off today. So what I do, for example, with him in his training, uh, we repair mostly American barrels. We do on a uh, once a week, then we would repair a, a sherry cask. And I'm talking about I'm getting down an old sherry cask, one that we're not going to use anymore. Okay, yeah, yeah. And using that as experience. What he's done with the sherry cask, he's cut it down and made it from a butt, which is 500 mm-hmm. liters, into a hog's head, which is 250 yeah. liters. So he's practically making a new cask. So every Friday we do some kind of project. Mm-hmm. 
we do something in the arc of coopering. We might make a small to tiny barrel. Uh, we might, for example, make a noggin. A noggin is a little tub that's about three inches tall, about 75 mil tall by 75 mil by three inches again with a handle on it. All right. That was yeah. traditionally used in Ireland as a drinking vessel. Mm-hmm. And when you drank from it, you brought it up to your noggin. You drank from the noggin and your head became a <laughs> noggin. And that's where that expression comes from. Yeah. And if you, for example, if you had a new baby being born into the house, they would say things like, there's a new noggin for that house. So you would go to the fair and you would buy a noggin as your drinking vessel because, you know, in rural Ireland, people didn't have the money to buy Delph or buy glass. Yeah. They would buy a noggin. The noggin would go on the dresser and it would be there for practically 30 or 40 years in use. That's so for life, we do lots yeah. of things like that. Yeah. We, we don't just keep it to just repairing American barrels or, or sherry casks. And mm-hmm. um, we w- would make an oval cask maybe. Um like oval butts, for example, which are 500 litre, but oval would be used on board ship in that it would be put in a corner of a ship and that's the water cask for the ship. Okay. So yeah, that it could yeah. fit into a corner. Yeah. Because oval doesn't make any sense for rolling. It doesn't roll, but mm. it does fit perfectly in a corner of a, of a hold of a ship for your water cask. So that's the ship's cask, for example. So lots of traditions like that. I do teach uh, our own vocabulary in what we call tools. Mm. Uh, techniques um, because from what I've seen around different cooperages around, around Europe even is that we all end up with the same thing in the way of a barrel or a cask people get there in different ways using different tools in a different way Yeah, I'm very much trying to keep the Irish tradition alive and the Irish vocabulary alive and what we call a tool like for example we have a type of spoke shape called a swift in Scotland they call it a downright so I like to keep our traditions alive where some of our tools are called after animals like a dog, a crows, a swift, yeah. a horse, a mare. So um, so it's not all just about being production coopers either. It's also keeping an eye on the past and, and keep it for the future. Yeah. Um, in regards to for the, for the future for coopering, with the growth in Irish whiskey sales and with the growth of new distilleries, there's now a demand again for coopers. It mm. never reached the heights it once did, where you had thousands of coopers. Like I think Guinness is a one time at something like 600 coopers. Wow. Um, but I, I, I see it getting healthy where you'll have maybe a good dozen coopers in Ireland again, if not two dozen, mm. depending on how, how fast the, tri- the, the coopering grows. Yeah. Um, I do hope that when we do train up Irish coopers or whatever, that we do keep our traditions alive, our, our own way of expressing things and stuff like that. It sounds like, in your hands at least, it's it's safe, you know, and I hope you get to pass on the, the trade to a few other people um, before yes. you retire. Yeah, um, I, 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 I am. Like, for example, when you talk about retirement, I, I don't have long to retirement, a couple of years, but one of my pet projects is that if you go to the National Museum of Ireland, you can buy a book on coopering from 10th century Dublin. Wow. Uh, Viking coopering. Yeah. And my, uh, my, my goal is to make all the vessels they've discovered in Viking Dublin. Mm. They're exactly the same as, as I'd make them today, even though it was a thousand years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I have pet projects like that that I, that I just want to have time to do to myself and at home. And I do have yeah. my own workshop. You can oh, say wow. I have my own coopers at home. So um, Nice. 
So um and uh, work with that um yeah. and make some tools as well. You know, like one of mm. the few things we made in Middleton was we made our own compasses out of maybe ash rather than oak because it, it can be flexible. And mm-hmm. um, so I just want to get that going again and make those again and pass that skill on as well. You know. Yeah. So um so. It, I think the future of coopering is looking very bright. It wasn't mm. so bright maybe 20 years ago. No, uh, no. But I think the growth in Irish whiskey, in particular in Jameson, I think Jameson has led the way worldwide. And when people have a Jameson, now they want to taste other Irish whiskies. Mm. Um, and and so it's been fantastic. Um, and when I do meet other coopers, the funny thing is, when I meet the Spanish guys, they don't speak any English. I don't speak any Spanish. But there's a brotherhood. Yeah, it's unspoken. <laughs> I, I can't even put it in words. And I say what I mean, American Coopers, it's it's almost you're one of us. Yeah, I'm one of you, you yeah. know, so I think that's really lovely. And, and I find the same in Scotland as well. I mm. suppose there's so few of us left. Um, <laughs> you're a rare breed, is there a couple yeah. of thousand left in the world, you know, in total. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's been an amazing story. And I, I've learned so much talking to you today, Jared. And um, thank I, you very I have, much. Al. I have. Even more respect than than I did about the craft because it is uh, is an amazing craft and skill to have, and uh, it's it's really heartwarming to hear that you are passing it down to the next generation, and um, hopefully there'll be plenty more generations to come, and uh, we'll keep it alive. Um, hopefully, yeah. Thanks so much for talking to me today. It's been an you're welcome. Pleasure. It was my pleasure, and uh, and talk about coopering all day long. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Well, thanks very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. A real pleasure to talk to Jer and to hear his wealth of knowledge. He said he could talk about coopering all day. Well, Jer, the feeling is mutual, and I look forward to our next encounter. But maybe you'll have your hands full with those 3,000 barrels a day getting filled. Now, on to Ian Leonard from Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. A different perspective, but a similar story. Ian is a member of the new generation of Coopers and will most likely see Irish whisky transition into its next phase with all the new distilleries looking for coopering services. Let's hear all about it now. So Ian Leonard, thanks so much uh, for joining me on the Celtic Whisky Pod. Um, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, to start off with, maybe you could uh, tell our listeners how you got into the trade of coopering yourself. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me first, Aird. Um so the way I got into this trade was actually my brother happened to get into it before me. Uh, oh, I right. was actually living, ab- living abroad when he got into it. Uh, I came home just as he got started. So once he started explaining, I didn't actually know much about Cooper and I didn't really hear of the trade before before any of this. So yeah. the more my brother explained, the more adamant I was to get into it. It was very unique and yeah. old school, uh, crafty kind of a trade. So mm. I definitely wanted to try my hand on it. So I just kind of kept pushing until I got my foot in the door <laughs> and just never turned back since. And uh, who was it that passed on the, the, the trade to you? I, I assume it wasn't your brother at that stage. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was the late John Niley, uh, yeah. an old Scottish cooper who had moved over to Ireland in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked around the Kilbegan area for his, uh, for his career here in Ireland. Um, so he actually went into retirement and came back out of retirement to train me and my brother. Yeah. Uh, so he passed on all his knowledge or as much as he could. 
to miss out on himself. Yeah, and he sadly died a few years ago, didn't he? So he that, did. He did. Yeah. He died. He died about midway through my apprenticeship. Okay. And you've finished that, and now you're working with uh, Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the setup with the company, because um, is Ireland their first foray outside of Kentucky? Yes. So we have three locations, uh, two currently in Kentucky, uh, and we are the first outside of the country uh, Kentucky establishment that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, So we bring in barrels from America, but we also bring in barrels from Europe, Basically, any any kind of a barrel that a customer might want, we try and seek it out and try and get it into the country for them. Um, so that ranges from bourbon barrels to rum. Uh, we have tequila, port, everything and anything, really. Okay. Ranging from 200 litres, 500 litres, all shapes and sizes. <laughs> and you mentioned your customers there. I mean, you don't obviously have to, you probably don't want to mention any names, but you can if you want, but... Um, what kind of distilleries are you working with? Are they all different sizes? Um, you know, because there, there are quite a few different setups across Ireland, obviously. Yeah, so we actually, we deal with all different sizes. We will supply one barrel from thousands of barrels, anything, everything and anything. We do aim to help as many of the distilleries, big and small as we as we possibly can. Mm. And is it just yourself there as the only Cooper or is your brother working there or any other Coopers? Uh, no, it, it is just myself for now. Um, yeah. But we, we do it. We are hoping to soon move in to get a few more Coopers. Um, it myself just isn't enough to do all the needs of once of all the customers in the country. <laughs> so we do we do intend on taking on uh, going into an army of Coopers, as, as I like to say it. Yeah. Um, but that is that is the goal. We bring them in, we process them, we repair barrels, everything and anything under the same roof. So when it comes to having more coopers, you'd be doing the training yourself and passing on the trades. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. I'll be uh, myself that does the training. Yeah, I mean, um, it's an incredible uh, trade, and it was great talking to Jared Buckley about it for the podcast as well. And um, I mean, he mentioned the tools that you use, and um, you know, t- tools are passed down from cooper to cooper, and I gather um, you pretty much have to make your own tools yourself as well. Do you have you done that? Yeah, yeah. I actually have a few custom made tools myself. Um, I was actually quite fortunate. Uh, some of my tools were passed down um, from a deceased cooper in Scotland, where his mm-hmm. uh, his children didn't actually pick up the trade, but they didn't want the tools to be just left there, so they actually donated their tools to me. So my wow. tools have uh, quite a bit of history already behind them. <laughs> So they're like heirlooms, and then maybe one day it get passed on from you to someone else. Yeah, a bit like yeah, the trade. Yeah, definitely. A bit like the skill <laughs> itself. Um, so we talked a bit about the barrels. I would say, would it be fair to say the bulk of what you you're looking at is bourbon barrels, but then th- there's other stuff in there as well. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, bourbon barrels would be our our big one, uh, as you know. Uh, the whiskey has to be within the barrel for the three years. So that's that's where you get the bulk of the bourbon barrels been used. Uh, then we'll bring in specialty barrels, which people would normally use to finish off their whiskey, mm. uh, change the flavor, change the taste, um, change the color a little bit. <coughs> Sorry. Um, but, but the bulk would be the bourbon barrel, yes. Yeah. Um, 
so you have your your kind of standard bourbon then uh things like rum sherry port what what other kind of wood types have you done any sort of exotic things like um you know there's a big trend of people experimenting because ireland is in this unique position where we don't have to use oak um we can use other woods um I mean, I'd imagine some of the other words can be a pain in the ass to work with, but have, have you uh, sort of come into contact with any of those ones, like the kind of cedars and uh, mizanaras and things? I haven't come into contact with a lot right now. I'm sure in the near future I will I will be coming into a bigger A. Uh, chestnuts would be the the only other wood I have uh, encountered for now. Yeah. Um, not my favorite wood to work with. Uh, it's a bit softer. It's a bit more porous takes a bit more to get it um airtight and liquid tight yeah um but we do love we do love a good challenge so it's a much much softer wood um the oak is a lot easier to work with it's it's yeah. solid it's firm you know what you're dealing with uh, the chestnuts tend to be a bit more knotty uh, so the knots tend to be pose a big problem uh, yeah. so try to get them out trying to get the hole sealed up again um but not not too bad all the same. Uh, just a bit softer, so they just need a bit more of attention. Okay. In your sort of general day to day job, what what would is every day different, or is it mostly sort of looking at batches of barrels and finding things to uh, like uh, repair on them and and fix them up, or is it quite varied? Uh, my day can be quite varied, from uh, taking in containers, getting deliveries out. Um, my repairs can go anywhere from repairing one stave, your hoops, your ends. Um, so repairing an end, I might have to make up a brand new end, cut it into shape, uh, things like that. Would you be able to say what sort of numbers of barrels you get through in a sort of typical week? Um, kind of uh, big enough for numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We take them in. They come in uh, individually. We'll bring them in. We will uh, pressure test them. We'll drill them for wherever the specification of the customer wants their bung. Mm. Um, we, once they go through repair, we drive the hoops with our hoop driver, we steam them to swell up the wood again uh, and retest them then again at the end of the stage to get palletized, straps, whatever requirements really our customers are looking for. Yeah, so they're, they're pretty much very well sort of tested barrels by the time they go off to the, the distillery. Um, do you find that most people are using palletized storage these days or are they still using racked uh, warehouses? It, the bigger guys would be kind of palletized. Obviously, they deal with higher volumes and their storage. Uh, they need to get as much into the storage as they can. Mm. But the smaller guys, then they tend to have a bit more of the old school uh, on their side kind of a thing. Um, yeah. Uh, they wouldn't be palletized as much, um, but the, every everything leaves our, our place on pallets. Yeah. And is there anything you can sort of talk about in terms of what distilleries are asking you for these days? Are there any sort of trends you can identify in, in terms of what casks people are asking you to source outside of the, the sort of norm? It, not really. As you say, it's very experimental right now in this country. Mm. So not everyone is after the same barrel. A lot of people tend to want to be a bit more unique. Um, just trying to get their hands on everything and anything different, see what it does to their flavor and see what they can make from it. Yeah. You're, you're sort of in a unique situation where you kind of look after barrels for people. Um, do you think there are 
should be more coopers in Ireland in general or I mean because the the amount of distilleries has exploded and um, training up a, a cooper takes at least a couple of years I, I don't know the exact time frame is it two years or three years or longer it's four four years four years so yeah I can imagine yeah. that sort of cooper trade is a little bit behind <laughs> the curve um, do you do you personally think there could be a shortage uh, yeah, so in this country, they did kind of die out there for a little while. We're trying to revive that again, because as you say, we went from about four distilleries to 40 plus now in the country. Yeah. Um, so Coopers are definitely, definitely going to be needed. Uh, as the years goes on, all of these barrels will eventually need some kind of repair. Um, so you're going you're gonna to need a good Cooper workforce to make sure all these barrels are able to be Coopered and get them back out in the market again. Yeah. And um, is there any plans for expansion yet with um, Kentucky um, Bourbon Barrel, or is it uh, you're just you're based in Newbridge, Kildare? Is that right? It, that's yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, I I do see uh, probably an expansion in the near future. Um, it is a big industry, um, and the work takes up a bit of space. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so also also the supply of barrels coming in and things like that also more employees stuff like that all plans for the future all right ian uh, thanks so much I, I i know you've sort of taken time out of your day to talk to me so it's been a pleasure talking to you um so uh wish you all the best and uh i'll probably see you at a whiskey event at some point so thanks for talking to me today no problem thanks for having me cheers all the best you're listening to the celtic whiskey pod the home of unchill filtered conversation. So there you have it. I have a newfound appreciation of the craft of coopering. It is such an important part of the whiskey making process. And from what I have heard from Jer and Ian, we are going to be in safe hands for a few more generations. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Celtic Whiskey Pod. I've been your host, Al Higgins. Please spread the word and let people know about us. Hit like and subscribe wherever you stream us from. And we will be back with another episode soon. All the best and slancher for now.